Hi, friend, and welcome to another episode of Dr. Me First. I am just super glad to have you join me here today and on this conversation. So I am your colleague in medicine and coach in life, Dr. freaking Aaron Wiseman. If you haven't been introduced to me before, I am so glad you're here. And I am talking with a longtime friend, Dr. Lulu, formerly known as Dr. Uchenna Ume. It's so great to have her on here today. Well, we are talking about a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts, which is childhood trauma. Dr. Lulu specializes in adolescent and child suicide, and I have a little bit of trauma training in my background, too. So stick around in our conversation, listen in, and think about with yourself, maybe what has happened to you, the most important question to ask when it comes to trauma work. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, my friend and fellow entrepreneur. Gosh, we go way, way back, everybody. We were talking before the recording how long it's been since her last episode, and it's been way too long. But this is the amazing Dr. Lulu. Thank you so much for being here today. Muchísimas gracias, mi amiga. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Okay, tell the people out in podcasting world all about your fabulous self and the magic you're bringing uh, to the world. Not you. I guess, you know, everybody needs a little black girl magic, right? So maybe I bring it cosmic dust and stuff like that, you know, but um, <laughs> so we first met, we think it's been a little over a year and I know that podcast episode, you were like, you need to come back. And I was like, oh, you need to come on mine, which by the way, you have not come on mine yet. Um, but so I'm a, I'm a, I like to say I'm a, I, I like to call myself the Tolulu, AKA the mom attrition, cause I'm a pediatrician and I'm a mom and that's it. That's, that's my two claim to fame. If you cut me right now, you will see, I will bleed a mix of blood and pediatrics. Cause I love being a doctor. I love being a pediatrician. That being said, two years ago, I did a, a hard left or right, depending on which direction you like to go and essentially did a pivot from traditional pediatrics to what I call non-penicillin pediatrics. So right now I do the ultimate form of preventative medicine, which is preventing suicide. And I mostly speak, I've done, since I was on your podcast, I've had a United Nations gig, I've had a global Pan-African gig. I got two TEDx talks. I've got books and online courses. And I love, love, love it. And now my pediatric practice is my side gig. I know you have blown up this world. You were just finishing up your MBA because you gave me some great business advice and you were getting into your DPC practice. And yeah, and I absolutely have to come on your podcast. I don't know what my problem is. Like it needs to happen today. It will happen. It will, we can do it today. Absolutely. We can. But yeah, you, um, so I had just finished that. That puts it at exactly a year because MBA was May of last year. Mm-hmm. This is June. So just a little over a year, which is great. My, I think my work is a mixture of, I'm very confident. I want to save lives. And then, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Am I crazy? And that's probably not new for most people self-doubt and imposter syndrome. Are you kidding me? We have tea and coffee. But I just see you have to keep doing life afraid, I think is what I like to say. So 
every single day I wake up in the morning, what am I going to do today? Today is Wednesday, for instance, I work on my online courses. So because I know that's what I'm supposed to do today, I don't care if I started at four o'clock, I'm going to do it today. Tuesdays, I work on my book. Mondays, I do my podcast. So that has kept me sane. Otherwise, I am the ultimate energizer bunny. I will be tigger and bounce around. <laughs> so it just depends. But I'm happy. I'm happy that people have finally, you know, are, are listening and are giving me grace and give, and just kind of holding space for me to come and on, help them unlearn what they think they already know about suicide, especially in children. And the roots of suicide for across the board, children, adults, and matter is trauma. But people will not leave mental illness alone. And because they hold on to mental illness as the cause of suicide, unbeknownst to them, right? They, they mean well, but because they are thinking mental illness, most people who are suicidal will not open their mouth and say anything. They don't want you to classify them as mentally ill. Because they truly are not. There's a reason why most suicides are a surprise. Wait, wait, what? What do you mean he killed himself? I was just talking to him last week. He looked fine. Yes, he looked fine because he's not sick. He has what I call a series of unfortunate traumatic events. That's it. Whether it's a breakup from their, their boo in college or high school, or whether it's cyberbullying, or whether it's verbal bullying from the parents, Emotional abuse from a mom who's an, maybe an alcoholic or father that is not present, whether it's sexual abuse from the grandfather who happens to be the pastor, whether it's physical bullying at school on the school bus in the playground, ostracization because you're black, you're Nigerian, you wear hijab, whatever. However you introduce a trauma, people who become suicidal have had enough of it. They have a deep-seated pain that antidepressants cannot fix. And that is why in the past four years in the U.S. of A, we've had a tripling of prescription strength antidepressants. And in the last six months since COVID-19, we probably have quintupled. If there's a, that's, I don't know, the five times. Okay. So if indeed mental illnesses are the crux of suicides, why is it that while Antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicines are going up. Suicides are also going up. That's, that math is wrong, right? If indeed it was correct, we should be having less suicides. And the problem I think that the world is having now is most suicides are not reported as suicides. So when I was suicidal, if I had carried out my suicidal ideation, my wife will have never used her mouth to say she died. Maybe she would, maybe she would. But I don't know that my kids will admit that, I, that their mother died by suicide yet. And I know for a fact that my father will never utter the words suicide with his mouth. There's such a huge taboo about suicide. So that's just me, right? So imagine while we're thinking every 40 seconds there's someone that's dying by suicide. In the time that we've been speaking, how many 40 seconds is that? But the problem with that is the WHO predicted by 2020 will be one every 20 seconds. And then you and I know that most of the suicides are not being recorded. So how many are we really having per second? That is the problem. And so while everyone is crying, COVID-19, COVID-19, we've lost 120,000 people. COVID-19 does not kill someone every 20 seconds. Everybody should be up in arms about suicide. And so bringing it back to children, 
The next generation, no one wants to talk about teenagers. Oh, he's just being a teenager. Is he really just being a teenager? Is he really just being a teenager or is he truly suicidal? Most people are not going to come and tell you, mom, guess what? I'm suicidal. No, you have to dig deep and maybe, just maybe they will tell you, mm-hmm. what's that? So knowing your child is critical, right? Knowing verbal and nonverbal cues, recognizing them and asking the questions. People don't want to ask questions because they don't want the, they don't want the, the response that they're going to get. But you have to ask because for some people, it's easier to say, yes, I'm not doing well, than I need help. So that's the catch there. So with children and childhood trauma, just in case you think I'm kidding, ACEs study was done in 1995 through 1997. And they found that all those kids coming and acting all crazy, all of them with ADHD, mm. they're just manifesting their trauma. And then if a black kid is worse because for the same behavior traits, you get suspended or expelled. The white kid gets sent to the principal's office. Or, oh, little Bobby needs time. But the black kid gets mm. sent home or whatever. And then people wonder why I tell them that African-American children aged 5 through 12 are twice as likely as their white counterparts to die by suicide. Well, I wonder why. It's called epigenetics or post-traumatic slave syndrome or persistent traumatic Distress, stress disorder, PTSS, something like that. The point I'm trying to make is that people just don't want to think that a child could really truly be traumatized enough. This girl, her name is Kendria Johnson. She's arguably the youngest child that died by suicide in America. She's six years old, black. There's a white girl called Samantha Kubriski. Both of them six-year-old girls died by suicide, Okay. Samantha Kubriski's story was, her mom said, that's it. Where they had a squabble during dinner. Said, go to your room. She's like, that's it. I'm going to go kill myself, she said. She went and killed herself. The sixth, the black girl, Kendria Johnson, had moved from foster home to foster home to foster home to foster home. And at one point, she felt guilty. She would, she, she, they, they said they had reported that she was a physically abused, mentally abused, sexually abused at the age of six. They had been making reports to the authorities for months before she died, right? No one said anything. Rather, they just moved her from home to home to home. And at one point she was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not a good person. Her suicide note said, I'm sorry, I'm bad. A six-year-old, sorry for being bad or something like that. So what does that tell you that they've told her for six years, you're bad? And then all the trauma of not being raised by her family members and all of this mess happening. And then she hangs herself with her junk rope. That is so significant. What she chose was her junk rope. Both girls actually, coincidentally. But the point I'm trying to make is the amount of trauma that this little six-year-old girl has endured is enough for her to feel like, you know what, maybe I'm better off dead. And that's what I want people to think. Have you ever, for once in your life, said to yourself, maybe the world is better off without me? I know I have. So when you act based on that, usually, of course, it's temporary, if you could wait, right? But for her, she didn't see anything better happening. And for most children who kill themselves, they don't see anything better ever happening. 
Most kids are bullied relentlessly and they kill themselves or they're sexually molested relentlessly and they kill themselves or they just feel like nobody's listening to them. They're invisible. But all of it, if you go down to the nitty gritty, you find trauma lives there. And I want people to know that you cannot give an antidepressant for trauma. And so don't ask me, why do you want to kill yourself? I'm going to tell you because I want to die. If you ask me, well, what happened? I said, oh, that? Oh, well, my house got burned. My son was brutally murdered by the police. I was, um, I am diagnosed with cancer. And, and my mother just died in my arms. Whatever. Either it's a series of traumatic events that you can't really give me an antidepressant for that. You can't. And it's not fair. So what we have is depressive crisis, not depression. And then when you label it depression, they already have that stigma with that word, right? They don't want you to call them depression because they're not really depressed. They're going through something. When we had the Enron, when they had the financial crisis, financial burst of 20, of 2008, we quoted 10,000 men who jumped, who killed themselves. 10,000 men. Why? Because of financial crisis. The day before Enron happened, they didn't have any mental illness. So I want people to understand that as long as you can call it mental illness all you want. Now, people who have clinical depression, they do have feelings of helplessness and hopelessness. And yes, they do have suicidal ideation. But if they are diagnosed properly and they get medication and they have the proper support that they need and no other things like substance abuse, you see, all of those things throwing curveballs. It's not as straightforward as that. If a gambler gambles all his money, he will be suicidal and might act on it. He's not depressed clinically. So I don't know how many examples I can give you why people should think trauma, trauma, trauma. And I say childhood trauma because I'm a pediatrician, mm -hmm. but really it's just trauma. Well, and I was just thinking too, like, you know, I work as a family medicine attending and I'm all the time talking to my residents about trauma. This is a trauma-based reaction. And so I'm interested to hear from you, you know, the term of a, a trauma-informed provider has been coming up more and more. What does that mean to you? And that's, that's essentially teaching. San Antonio, where I live, has actually adopted a trauma. We're now a trauma-informed city. We're trying to be, be, become that because now people are realizing that it's, it's trauma. And, and it's teaching you two things, empathy and compassion. That's the way I see it. Those are the two things that trauma-informed care means. That means, okay, maybe I've never been traumatized in my life, but I get it. I get that you've been traumatized. So then I look at you differently. An immigrant who walks into my office because they've just, for the past six weeks, walked through the desert to get to America or whatever, you know? I don't care if they have strep throat. It's not the same way you want to treat them with their strep throat that you treat the person who lives up the streets at the Dominion where all the basketballers and the shot callers live in San Antonio. It's a different energy. These people have been traumatized beyond trauma. You can say something like, how are you doing? And they start crying. You don't want to say, oh my God, what's wrong with that guy? Why is he crying? No, no. Give them a minute. Give them space. Allow them to just process that. Maybe they've never had anybody say something nice to them before. Maybe you're the first person. 
So being a trauma-informed provider is someone who knows, even without walking through the ashes, that this person has walked through ashes. This is a child that's coming from foster care. So you don't judge him as a, a statistic. You judge him as a child that has come from foster care, which is a lot of trauma. A lot of trauma most likely have been abused. So it's a different energy. Even if they come in for a toothache, it's a different care that you give them because you now have toothache plus trauma versus just a toothache. My sons, they have, I think, two of three of the ACEs questionnaire um, characteristics, I mean, the factors, rather. They have divorce in their family. They have maternal, because I've been, I was a, I was, um, a domestic abuse survivor, so maternal domestic, uh, domestic abuse, and I thought it was three the last time I checked with them. So anyone who has four or more has a high risk of suicide. Are you kidding me? That's my kids, and we live in the fancy neighborhood in San Antonio. So if my child goes to see you about his eczema, I need you to, to think, well, his parents are divorced. That's trauma. And so don't just look at him as just any other black kid. No, this is a black kid who's coming with that trauma. And then your care should have more empathy, 10x, and your compassion, 100x. Because most people don't realize that empathy means I see you, I hear you, and I feel you, right? But compassion means I see, hear, and feel you, and I would like to help. Or what can I do to help? So compassion is the big brother of all of those emotions. Compassion, you can't have that without mindfulness. You have to have mindfulness. You have to be present. You have to be completely vulnerable and allow your, vulner your vulner vulnerability to show when that kid is in the room because they don't need you to tell them anything that could trigger them. They're already traumatized. And so people who are trauma-informed care providers know that there's that extra layer of trauma in this patient that's coming in to see you because, wait a minute, his mom just died by suicide a month or two ago. He has the higher rate of suicide because he's a suicide, survive, suicide um, survivor's family, a family member. Or whatever. No, wait a minute. He is a suicide survivor. I think that's the word. I forget the trait. I think the person who has attempted is a suicide survivor. But the person whose family member of a suicide, I don't know, I can't think of it now, but whatever. They're related to someone who died by suicide. So because they are first degree relatives, they have a higher rate of suicide. And of course, the highest rate of suicide across the board is the person who has attempted suicide before. So you don't look down at them, which unfortunately is what we do. Because we think that, oh, they're selfish. Oh, how can you even want to kill yourself? Like, how, what could be so bad? You don't know. No, you don't know people's stories. And that's, I remind my learners too, is like, we just meet them where they're at and we layer them with love because we don't know people's stories. And the other thing, you know, me being a coach, we also don't know, even though what may seem not so bad to us, we don't know how that affected someone else's psyche and how that triggered something in them. And so I think you're totally right. It's like holding it softly, holding their experience and who they are. And and I like to tell my residents, I don't care where they come from. I don't care where they're going. In this moment, we need them to know they're safe. That's it. Safety is part of the, I think it's part of the, I think there are five principles. Safety is one of them that we, we, we well, mainly because most of my contact with, 
my last part-time job and then my current part-time job has to do with, is with immigrants. And I'm so thankful that I'm right here in North Mexico. So I, I meet a lot of those. Most of them are traumatized. Most of them are, tra- you can look into their eyes and you can tell that this man is broken. His spirit is completely broken. And no matter what you think of someone trying to come to America to, as a dreamer, no matter how you feel about them, you must allow your own vulnerability, if possible, to reflect theirs because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for that. Well, I think you said the perfect question. It's not what's wrong with you. The question is what has happened to you? What happened to you, yeah. And I think if we can start asking that more of our to our patients, but also too to ourselves. You know, and really reflecting on that, when you can have a reckoning of that with yourself, then you can have the empathy and compassion that you need, that others need. If you can allow yourself to believe that you're not, you're also not whole. <laughs> I think we forget that we ourselves are not whole. Everyone has various degrees of, you know, of trauma that they've, that they've gone through and yeah, none of us is whole. None of us is whole. My mom always says, show me a perfect man and I'll show you a liar because that's, that's, that's not true. It's just mm-hmm. not possible. And where we can have strength is where we bind arms together instead of trying to go it alone. I saw a picture of some of the protesters that I just can't get it out of my eyes because, um, and I don't want to because it was a bunch of white people that linked arms together and then put like a human shield between the police and the black folks. And I, I just, I just love that picture. And another group of white people all laid down on the ground side by side to form another human shield between the police and the black people. If there's ever been a picture that I want parents to show their kids of how you as a white person can use your white privilege to do good. That's a picture right there. That is like laid down shivers up my spine. Yes. No great. That's what the, the good book said. No better love than a man to lay down his life for another. I think that's the most powerful phrase in the Bible for those who read the Bible. Laying down your life means I here have it all, but just don't hurt this kid. Are you kidding me? And that's what the, the trauma patients want you to, to do. They want you to form that shield around them because they've been hurt so much and some are so badly hurt, they can't even verbalize the hurt. And um, as you know, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to if you don't want to, but sometimes part of therapy means you need to, you need to go there and, and make peace with it and then lock it up and toss it away forever and then, and then move on. Close that chapter. Yes, yes. And, but it's hard. It's, it's hard. It is. Talk a little bit about your books. I know that you've been writing, 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 and you've got a series coming out. And I want to spread the news about this to my listeners because I think it would be a great resource for anybody who wants to learn more. Yeah, certainly. My first book is called How to Raise Well-Rounded Children. And um, the second book is called A Teen's Life. <laughs> and I'm trying to reach across and grab them. But So How to Raise Well-Rounded Children was my first book. Every, every, all of the books are on Amazon. 18's life is my my newborn baby. It's about six months old. And it really chronicles 12 teenagers who, they are fictitious, but they're writing me a letter, so like a Dear Dr. Lulu letters, telling me about the kind of trauma that they've been through. And one of the, one of the girls in the book, one of the stories in the book, I didn't get to her on time, if you know what I mean. 
And my mother, who's one of my beta readers, she's like, I can't stop crying. This is so sad. And then actually after she killed herself in the book, I couldn't write for like, for like three weeks. And my wife was like, you know, you're the author of the book, right? Like you could, you could change. I said, no, I don't want to change it. I need her to do that. It's important for her to do that, for people to know that this is not just some fictitious, it's, this, this things happen. And then my most recent book, well, the one that's going to be published next week, was actually a blog that went viral. And the blog's title is How to Teach Your Children About Race Relations. That's the name of the blog. And it was like 15 Commandments. But the book is called How to Teach Your Children About Racism. And it's 21 Commandments. So I found about six more to add to it. And essentially just made it into a book. So that one, obviously, it's timely. Um, I wish I didn't have to write a book about that. But a few days ago, my son and I were talking about trans women and how one of my heroes, Ms. Chimamanda Adichie, was a, was a transphobic, he said. I'm like, what, what is that? And then he broke it down to me, explained everything to me, how she's a um, liberal, female, trans, something. There's a name, turf or something. I don't know what they call them. But he explained to me how she says, well, trans women are trans women. They're not women because they don't technically have the growing up ex- um, experience of a cis woman, which is, you know, cisgender woman, which means a girl who grew up to become a woman. And how, well, because they were men, they had certain advantages and then became women. So technically we're not the same, something like that. But then I said to him, I said, wow, I never really thought about that. And then he said, boom, right there. He said, you know that a lot of white people feel that way about racism. They've never really thought about it, except now. And I was like, you know what? He's right. And so I had to give myself grace to write the book. and said, you know what? Maybe, just maybe, there are some people out there who've never really thought about it. They've just been going about their life like, oh, the black folks are getting killed. Okay. Maybe they did something wrong to deserve it without thinking, wait, you're right. They are being discriminated against. What he said to me was, he said, a trans woman is a woman today who used to be a man, who was assigned a gender of a male at birth. Because they have already decided when they had already decided when they were younger that they were in the wrong body, they have already been subjected to all kinds of stuff without us knowing, unbeknownst to us. We've been treating them, treating them like boys. We've been expecting them to act like boys. You know what I mean? But inside, they feel like, well, I'm really a girl inside. So that in its own is traumatizing. And then when they now come out and then have the sex change, we now further ostracize them. So he was telling me how technically they have had a worse experience than cis girls. But he had to break it down to me that way. And I was like, thank you to my son. I said, thank you for educating me that way because I never really thought about it. He said, that's exactly how some white people feel. They've never really thought about racism. Like, how bad could it be? So I guess that book, I'm excited about it. It's, um, it's basically a letter and it's, it starts, Dear White American Parents. <laughs> that's how I start. And I said, I signed your friend and cheerleader, Dr. Lulu, something like that. But um, I think it's, it's, it's going to teach people to just take it, just think again about it. Just take a second thought about before you 
you judge the black boy for walking around, calling him lazy. He's wearing his pants down and whatever dreadlocks. Before you do that, just take a deep breath and say, I don't know what his story is. I want you to say that to yourself. I don't know what his story is. I don't know that his father is not incarcerated. I don't know that his mom didn't have three boyfriends and one of them molested him. I don't know that he's not homeless. I don't know. I don't know. So if you come to the conversation with, I don't know enough about this, you're already exposing your vulnerability. And, you know, I know everyone's talking about white fragility. I'm not going to read it because I don't really think this, I don't think it should be, I don't, I don't like that phrase. It doesn't make any sense. Why isn't there black fragility? You know, it's like, I don't, I don't really want, I know what the book is about, but I don't like it because that is saying it's okay for me to be ignorant of the fact that trans men or rather trans women, you know what I mean? I should have yes. thought about it. I should have. I should not be allowed to not have thought about it. Because, well, me now, of course, today, in today's world, I know that trans youth have the highest rate of suicide, suicide amongst all the youth. I know that. But I'm saying, judging a trans woman and saying, whatever, I should not. Just like judging a black man, you should not. You should just let people just be who they are. Well, and Dr. Lou, I have to tell you, I am really excited about your book because from your videos that you did and that you talked about it, I watched them with all three of my children. And we have had amazing conversations about racism and in, in ways that you talked about. And I told them, I said, this is my friend, Dr. Lulu. We're going to watch her. And, and I just, I'm so glad to see that you acted on that. I'm glad too. I, I, it's, I mean, imposter syndrome, you know, it's, it's crazy. It's a present with me at all times. I'm like, is the book going to do well? Is it going to do, is anyone going to read it? It's, it, it, you know, I still keep on judging myself because it's what we do. But then the thing about the, the opposite of fear is courage. Yeah. Okay. I'm not, I'm not sure if they're going to read it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. Well, you know, you're going to have the wise men's in Indiana are, are on that list to get it. Friend, thank you so much for coming and talking with me. I love, I love when we get together. I will be on your podcast. You're going to have to come back for the three-peat on here. And I'm just supporting you 100% along the way. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. You're definitely an ally from day one. And um, it's also good to, to come out and be an ally if you are one, you know. Um, that's all I can say at this point, but I appreciate it. So everything is going to be on Amazon in the next one week. The book should be dropping. Once it returns from the formatting guy, I'm good to go. So wish me luck. Oh, boy. <laughs> Dr. Lulu for coming on the podcast, for having a great conversation. And most of all, I want to thank you so much for your voice and the work that you are doing in the world. There is no one who is better equipped than you are. And I'm just so excited to be your acquaintance, your colleague, and your friend. So thank you so much, Dr. Lulu. And anybody who's out there who wants to hear more about Dr. Lulu, I will include all of her links in the show notes. But also check out Words of a Black Butterfly. I think you'll really enjoy it. I actually cruise on there every so often to see if she's put up new personal blog posts or poetry. 
And it really is inspirational to me. And I just thank you so much for that. Your kick of encouragement today. I don't even know if I could do any more of a kick of encouragement from that conversation. But what I want to encourage you is like that was mentioned in our conversation is empathy. I see you. I hear you. I feel you and compassion. I just think those are two things that this world needs so much more of both externally, but also internally for ourselves. So with that being said, thanks so much for listening, for joining our conversation. And please remember your life, your calling, your pulse.